He is risen. Oh, well done. That was really good. Well, welcome everyone. I don't know too many other places in the world where when it rains on Easter, everyone's like, yeah, this is great. <laughs> but here in California, it is. So God is good, right? Well, welcome again. My name is Steve. I'm the associate pastor here at Regen, and uh, we're really glad that you have joined us today on Easter Sunday. I want to say a special word of welcome to those of you who are new or visiting with us this morning. We're glad that you're here. All right, I'm going to read some scripture here before Albert comes and teaches us this morning. So if you have a Bible, we'll be in the Gospel of Mark, and we'll begin in chapter 15, verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma shabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, whom was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go. Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Good morning. He is risen. Last Friday, I got to share at a Good Friday service with a good friend of mine out in True Vine Ministries out in West Oakland, traditionally a black church, and there was just like a handful of people in that room. I'm hoping this morning that you guys can do us justice, being that you are a larger group and can provide some enthusiasm and some feedback while we share this wonderful day. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for rising. 
Lord, we have no Christian faith without this occurrence. You've challenged anyone who would want to discredit Christianity with this very event, that if they can prove this didn't happen, then we don't have a faith. Yet here we are, 2,000 years later, billions of people in the history of man still recognizing this day that you rose from the dead. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Pretty incredible, actually, don't you think? I have a daughter who's four years old, and at her preschool, they have artwork displayed at the entrance of the room. And at the artwork, it has this phrase here. It says, what I like about Easter, and then it has a blank. And so all these kids have different things. What I like about Easter, jelly beans, or bunnies, or chocolate, or egg decorating, egg hunting, families, Jesus, the cross. Some even drew an empty tomb, which I thought was pretty brilliant for a four-year-old. I won't say which one my daughter drew, but... <laughs> now, why such the varied responses from preschoolers? And here's an interesting thing, because I don't think it's just preschoolers. I think there are many who are unfamiliar with the true heart and the true meaning of Easter. That if we were to hand out a bunch of blank paper around here and we were to kind of take a poll and give crayons out and have people draw, we'd have a variety of responses if I didn't kind of preclude it with pictures from preschoolers. Where does this idea of like bunnies and chocolate and all this kind of stuff come from anyway? And I'm not putting any of that stuff down entirely because this morning we had decorated eggs for breakfast. So it's not like I'm, you know, bashing that stuff. But a lot of the things that we associate Easter with actually stems from pagan roots. Now, there's a debate as to where those pagan roots are. Some have credited it back to ancient Babylon. Back in those days, in the worship of Ishtar, which is actually pronounced Easter in most Semitic dialects. Or its origins are from the Phrygians or the Phoenicians, the Canaanites or the Anglo-Saxons. Like, no matter where the origin is, the agreement is that its origins are from pagan worship of fertility, death, and or resurrection during springtime. Those are its roots. So before even Christians took some of these symbols into our own celebration of Jesus, death, and resurrection, we need to keep in mind that this type of celebration had been happening before and during Mark's account of Jesus' biography here. Now the spring, the spring pagan celebrations coincided with what was happening in the Jewish calendar in Passover and in the Christian calendar, Easter. And there was enough of this coincidence that there was some cross-pollinating happening. Some of those pagan symbols were adopted as Christian symbols. Now, why do I give you this brief explanation of the origin of Easter? Because it's important for Christians to know the true heart and the true meaning of Easter and a concern I have for the church is that even Christians can't identify what the true heart and meaning of Easter is because it's just kind of all mixed up. And like I said, that if I were to hand out a blank piece of paper out here and give some crayons out, I think before hearing this stuff, we would get pictures back of bunnies and Easter eggs and all that kind of stuff, just like in my daughter's class, I would think. So what is the heart? What is the meaning of Easter? What is it all about? So let me encapsulate the Christian Easter into a yummy jelly bean filled egg for you this morning. And it'll be four humongous jelly beans for you to remember by, all of them buttered flavored popcorn. 
Such an awesome flavor, it's so disgusting. <laughs> My daughter has games where they dare each other to eat buttered flavored popcorn jelly belt. Anyways, four biblical pictures found in the Gospel of Mark so that if we were to draw the meaning and the heart of Easter, hopefully these pictures would be in our drawing. So one of them, a really easy drawing to draw actually, is darkness over the whole land. Chapter 15, verse 33. The second picture is this, a little more difficult to draw. Jesus crying out with a loud voice and one last cry. Chapter 15, verse 34 and verse 37. Another third picture, pretty simple to draw. The curtain of the temple was torn in two, verse 38. And then the last picture, an empty tomb. Chapter 16, verses 5 and 6. So those four pictures, darkness, Jesus crying loud, the curtain torn in two, and an empty tomb. First picture, darkness over the whole land, chapter 15, verse 33. Now keep in mind that before this darkness, before this three-hour darkness, everything was pretty normal in Jerusalem, right? People were just kind of going about their normal lives, just going about their normal business. The citizens of the city just doing as the citizens always do, whatever they're doing. Shopping, talking, eating with people, whatever they're doing. Roman soldiers doing whatever they do, enforcing Roman law. These soldiers who were executing people doing what they did. It was just business as usual. It's nothing different, nothing out of the ordinary in the life of someone living in Jerusalem. This is happening all the time. And so sure, Jesus had this good following, and there were a fair amount of people who were against him at his trial. But as far as the Romans crucifying people as a painful, torturous form of capital punishment, that's nothing new. That's been happening for a really, really long time. You know, they've done it over and over again. And the people who witnessed Jesus' death on the cross, most of them were there to ridicule, scoff, and mock Jesus. They weren't there to like mourn or grieve or anything like that except for his mom and a few followers. Even the guy next to him was mocking him who was dying right next to him. Even he got in on it. And so everything appeared normal in Jerusalem that day until the sixth hour had come, which is 12 noon. Thank God for our rain. Very appreciative of it. But typically on a spring day, it's pretty sunny and bright. Typical spring day. Verse 33, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Don't you think that would grab your attention? Even on a cloudy, rainy day like this, if it just went completely pitch dark, wouldn't it grab your attention? Bright spring day. Suddenly, three hours of darkness. Darkness. Your shopping would stop, your eating would stop, your visiting of family or friends would stop. Anything you were doing, you would stop. You would stop. And it'd be one thing if it was 10 seconds because you're like, oh, what was that? This is three hours. What was going on? God grabbed the attention of the world right here. Everyone would stop what they were doing. You could not continue doing what you were doing. There was no light. There was nothing. You had to stop what you were doing. And at this time, what would you have to do? You would have to think through what was really important in your life. Because if it is suddenly dark, what do you do? I know what I do. Where's my wife? Where's my kids? 
a far third. Where's my dog? I would think those things. Right? And children, if they were anywhere in the house, Mom, Dad, if they were next to you, they'd grab onto you. What's happening, Mommy? What's happening, Daddy? What's going on? Why is it so dark? See, the rhythms of normal everyday life stopped, completely stopped. And some may think, oh, that was really cute of Mark to write such a thing, you know, to put in that dramatic effect into Jesus' life. Oh, that's great. Let me share with you something, that this is not a made-up fairy tale or folklore, that if we look just in world history, if we look at Roman history, you look at a historian named Phlegon. He wrote this. In the fourth year of the 202nd Olympiad, there was an extraordinary eclipse of the sun. At the sixth hour, the day turned into dark night so that the stars in heaven were seen and there was an earthquake. This is not a Christian. It would be awesome if this guy was a Jew because Jews hated Jesus. Now, something interesting about Phlegon, he wasn't familiar with how solar eclipses worked as he didn't have the scientific information that we have today. But did you guys notice the moon last night? It is a full moon. During this time of year, it's a full moon. A normal eclipse of the sun is impossible during the time of Passover because it is during a time when there is a full moon. Can't happen. You can't have a normal eclipse during a full moon. Do you see the hand of God at work to make this happen? It's not by accident that a solar eclipse happens. It can't happen. When else has God used darkness to grab the attention of the world? You look back into Exodus chapter 10. This is during the plagues. Verses 21 through 23, there was a plague of darkness because Pharaoh wouldn't let Moses and the people go free. What was that plague of darkness? Essentially, it is this. Same thing. God grabbing the attention of Pharaoh and Egypt, demonstrating who he is. It was God making himself known to the world. And it's the same thing in Mark chapter 15, verse 33. God grabbing the attention of the world and demonstrating who he is, making himself known. But the reason why, why would he do this? In Exodus, it was to set his people free from the bondage and slavery to Pharaoh and to Egypt. In Mark, it is to set his people free from the bondage and slavery to sin. To sin. It's a declaration that God is saying, like, I am knocking you out. Lights out. This is done. And in the darkness the congregation of Israel experienced in Egypt, they were told to offer a Passover lamb. Exodus chapter 12, verse 7. Take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts and the lintels of the house in which they eat. You skip down to verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. I strongly encourage you to attend the Passover Seder this Friday. It will blow your mind if you don't get these kind of pictures from the Old Testament into the New Testament with the Christology that's involved there. They were saved by the blood of the Lamb. And when we come to the Gospels, who is Jesus? John chapter 1, verse 29. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. His blood was put on the doorposts and the lintel, right? The sign of the cross. 
It's back here in Exodus. It's back there in the Old Testament. So that judgment of sin may pass over you. To set you free from darkness. To set you free from the bondage and the slavery of sin. And some of you may still be in this darkness. Despite of how well things are going for you financially and relationally, materially, physically. You are still in darkness spiritually. Now Jesus didn't ever sin. But he did experience darkness. Which brings us to our second picture. Jesus crying out with a loud voice and one last cry. Verses 34 and 37. I'll just read verse 34. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus experienced momentarily this darkness of being away from God. And the crying out, the loud cries, which weren't anything new. Right? Loud cries being crucified? That's nothing new. Everyone cried out loud that was crucified. This is nothing new. It's a torturous, painful death. Right? First, the victim is scourged, their flesh ripped from their back as they're tied onto the post, and they have this whip that included into it like pieces of glass, pieces of bone, and they get in there and they'd rip it out, and so it would expose the person's back, just bleeding back there. Then they were nailed to the crossbeams just through the wrist, they think. Right in between the wrists so that they would hold up and would sever that large median nerve that went through the whole arm here. And what it would do, it would, it would cause this immense fiery pain in both arms. And what it would do is create this talon-like grip because you couldn't control those nerves anymore. And the victim on the cross had this painful time of breathing because his weight would pull down on his arms and his shoulders. And that lack of oxygen led to cramping all over his body. And to breathe, they'd have to pull and push from these nail-pierced limbs and just creating searing pain every time they wanted to take a breath. And every effort of breath was excruciating and exhausting. You can read more about those medical aspects of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. You can just pull up blueletterbible.org. There's a medical doctor there who wrote an article by the name of Dr. David Terasaki. Jesus cried out in physical pain just like every single other person who died from crucifixion. It's nothing new. He also suffered emotional pain. Matthew chapter 23, verse 37, he said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, his closest friends deserted him. He was betrayed by a disciple. The loud cry of Jesus was also an experience of those two things. Physical pain, emotional pain, but there's a third pain here too. There's a spiritual pain. This is something that may be distinct from everyone else that hung on a cross. The pain of being forsaken by God, his Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, we experience the spiritual pain when we forsake God now, what does forsake mean? It means we abandon, we renounce God. The thing is, is that we probably just aren't as sensitive to that pain as Jesus was because Jesus didn't have sin. Because sin is essentially forsaking God. 
This is something he's never experienced before, where you and I, we have that sin nature in us. We get calloused over and over again as we do things. We become cold to it. We become numb to it. It doesn't bother us. And here, this is for the first time that Jesus experiences being forsaken by God. And the consequence of forsaking God is the absence of God. Never in his life has this ever happened. To be forsaken by God. See, sin disconnects us from God. Jesus reconnects us to God. Jesus, who is sinless, was forsaken by God, but he was sinless. So whose sin was he paying for, who he was dying for? It's not him. It's me and you. He died for those evil thoughts that we have in our head. He died for those wicked actions and behaviors that we've enacted in our lives. He died for our selfish and foul hearts. He said to God, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Luke chapter 23, verse 34. Jesus was forsaken by God so that you and I could be forgiven. Now, I mentioned to you this last Good Friday when we had this joint fellowship with a friend's church of mine. And what happened there was there was just a panel of seven different pastors. We all got up and, and I was honored to be able to share this first saying first of the last seven sayings of Jesus was this one, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. This is about the forgiveness of sins. Now, what is sin? It's when I don't want God to rule my life. It's when I determine what is good and what is bad. It is when I believe that I'm the center of the world and I see fit to judge what is right and what is wrong, that I dictate my own life and my own world. I think that definition includes all of us when we say that we are all sinners, because we all do this. And so Jesus saved us from this misguided judgment, that imperfect determination of what we think is good and right, what's good and bad, and what's right and wrong, all this kind of stuff. And if we are not sinless, if we have a thought in our head that we are not sinless, then why hasn't anyone figured out how to be ultimately good? except for Jesus. How come no one in the history of the world has figured this out? In the history of mankind, name one other person who has been perfect. Are we better people now than we have been in any other time in history? Are we happier now than in any other time in history? See, we can't say we're better, we can't say we're happier. There's no evidence for that. And actually, if we just kind of live life, we actually probably think that things are worse. And while we're at the first of Jesus' last sayings on the cross, let's go over that really quickly. I know that Good Friday was a couple of days ago, but as Pastor Steve said, we like to do things a little backwards here. And I think this is going to be informative. The last seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. First one, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Luke chapter 23, verse 34. And so on that cross, the first thing out of Jesus' mouth is forgiveness. First thing. The forgiveness of sins, that he would pardon you and me. First thing. Amazing. Because the first thing out of my mouth is not going to be that. Right? Second saying, Luke chapter 23, verse 43. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is mind-blowing to me. I was just thinking about this. I was wanting to do a whole sermon on this because this is just really incredible to me that he spoke a promise of salvation. But think about this. This is the amazing part to me. 
one of the first people to enter into the presence of God after Jesus' death is a criminal. Have you ever thought about that? This is incredible to me. It's not some guy of high reputation or of good standing or that did amazing things for the gospel. A criminal. A sinner. Someone who was sentenced to capital punishment is maybe the first guy. And yet this is so fitting. This is so fitting. The guy shows up in heaven. And you know what? He shows up there and he's like, what in the world? Whoa. And he doesn't know anything about theology. And so an angel comes up to him and says, that's so great that you got justified by faith. What? Yeah, Yeah, I did. I did. Oh, what was your sanctification process? How was that like? It's awesome. I, uh, I was good at it. He's looking up his dictionary, sanctification. What does sanctification mean? When were you baptized? Mm-hmm. It's, it's uh, yesterday. When did you take communion? Did you take communion? Were you at that last supper meal? Mm, yeah, it's good. It was good. Like, <laughs> see, the guy probably hasn't done much good in his life, has he? He's a criminal hanging on the cross next to Jesus. But he's there. How in the world did that happen? You were paying a capital punishment penalty right next to Jesus. How in the world did that happen? Jesus was right next to him, and he said to him, Today you will be with me in paradise. He forgave him of his sins. That was the first thing that he said. Forgive them of their sins. And he took upon himself the sins of that criminal, and he promised him, you're going to be with me. Listen, whatever you've done in your life that separates you from God, if this guy got in, there's room for you. There's hope for you. No matter what you've done. Third thing. Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. John chapter 19, verses 26 and 27. This is an expression of Jesus' sensitivity and his value in those relationships. And even as he's dying on the cross, he has that in mind. I'm going to skip through these really quickly here. Fourth one. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is found in Mark chapter 15, verse 34. This is Jesus' expression of agony, of his expression of abandonment. Then Jesus said, I thirst. John chapter 19, verse 28. This is chronologically, obviously. Jesus' expression of his humanity while he's in distress. And then it goes on. Jesus says, it is finished. John chapter 19, verse 30. This is a glorious pronouncement of Jesus' mission accomplished. And then finally, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Luke chapter 23, verse 46. This is Jesus' declaration of authority and his rightful place at the right hand of the Father. This is a reunion with God the Father. Last seven sayings of Jesus. Now, even though Jesus' death on the cross was victorious, let's not forget Jesus was fully human. He had our anatomy. He had our physiology. And he suffered the full brunt of pain and suffering on the cross during his death. See, during his death on the cross, Jesus was offered this sponge filled with sour wine, which was something to numb his pain. But he refused it. Why? 
It wasn't because he was being all macho. No, I don't need that. It's so that he can identify with your pain. He knows your pain. He hasn't numbed anything. He's taken it full on. He knows your pain. He took it all on the cross, and it was a picture that Jesus doesn't need any help dealing with pain. He has it all, right? He has it all. He's God. And on the cross, it hurt like hell. But he can take whatever pain you have as well. He's not numb to it. He's not callous to your pain. He knows your pain. He can take all of our pain, physical, emotional, spiritual, all of it, all of our darkness on himself. He doesn't need any help. He bears all of our darkness. He bears all of our sin, even though he himself was sinless. And after darkness and a loud cry, here's the third picture of Easter. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. Chapter 15, verse 38. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. Now, the temple in Jerusalem was the center of the Jewish religious life. In Hebrews chapter 9, it gives us more detail about these curtains in the temple. And the one referenced here in Mark is the curtain that separated the temple from the Holy of Holies, from the rest of the temple. And this curtain signified this. You might as well write on this curtain, no access for anyone. No access. Except for once a year, the high priest was allowed to go beyond that curtain and he would go in there with a lot of fear. They would tie a little bell around him and they would tie a rope around his ankle because if they stopped hearing that bell moving, that means the guy's dead. Pull him out. Would not want that job. And so here it is, signifying no access. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 7 tells us this. And here's what the first century Jewish historian Josephus wrote. He wrote that the curtain was four inches thick, that horses tied to each side could not pull this curtain apart. He also recorded that the temple Herod built was 40 cubits high, which is believed to be around 60 feet, and 10 cubits higher than the temple that Solomon built. So the curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. Big deal. So what? Huge deal. Huge deal. Jesus' death on the cross is sufficient for the atonement of sins. That curtain that used to signify no access now signifies direct access. You don't have to tie a rope and bells to some guy to go in there anymore. You can have direct access to God. From a time when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies once a year, Jesus then became our high priest and we can enter into the presence of God anytime. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He did not take that sour wine. But one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now let's look at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 22 here. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, 
And since we have a great high priest over our house, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. See, the things that happened in that temple that day were shadows of things to come. And I'm really glad to see that Mark included this detail that the curtain was torn from top to bottom. Because in my head, I just view God going like this. A piece of paper. Four-inch curtain turned. And where the curtain once existed, there Jesus stands, reconciling us to God. Direct access. You don't have to worry about this once-a-year stuff anymore, guys. Where we were once separated, he reconciles. And Jesus does that over and over again. When we have this separation, he reconciles. Whatever that disconnection is within us, he can connect us. That torn curtain was a tangible event to show we can know God. We can know him. We're not separated from him anymore. And then we get to our fourth picture here, the empty tomb. Chapter 16, verses 5 and 6. Gospel of Mark. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? Now, the empty tomb is the picture that declares and it underscores the truth of all the pictures that we've drawn. Darkness, Jesus' loud cry, the torn curtain. All those pictures don't mean anything if Jesus is not alive. It means nothing. And the significance of an empty tomb loses meaning without those first three pictures. But what good are the first three pictures if Jesus is dead? And so this is what Paul wrote about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to read starting in verse 12. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. The resurrected Jesus was the first fruit. In my front yard, I have an oak tree. Very fitting since we are in oak land. And around this oak tree, there are several saplings and several seedlings. But that oak tree was the first fruit. Where all the other saplings and seedlings would follow in the example of that first fruit. Where if it weren't for that oak tree, those saplings and seedlings weren't there. Now, where's the evidence of the risen Christ? We look back to 1 Corinthians 15 again, but let's look up verses in verse 5. And that he appeared... To Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. This was Paul. It's not like it was just a story of Jesus dying and resurrecting. He showed his resurrected body to a lot of people. 
This is not some mythology. This is not some folklore. He showed himself. How do you think Christianity spread? Just sociologically speaking, if you think about this, how can Christianity spread if he died and never rose again and he was just defeated? How can that happen? It won't. Now, I understand that there were a ton of false prophets who had many, many followers at the time. Many false messiahs at this time. What made Jesus different? You look at the fruit. Are any of those still around 2,000 years later? You look at the fruit. In Acts chapter 5, Peter and John, they speak in front of the Sanhedrin, and those guys want to kill them for preaching the gospel. And so we pick up the story, Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 34. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men, Peter and all those followers and the people preaching the gospel. For before these days, Theodos rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So, in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took notice. And here we are, 2,000 years later, people from every country in the world, every country in the world, celebrating Easter. Over 2 billion people celebrating Easter today. Gamaliel was right. Gamaliel was right. You knock off the leader, and if it's of man, it'll die. But if it's of God, it won't matter what you do. You can't overpower them. You can't overthrow them. So I have a question for you this morning. If you are not a follower of Jesus, what's holding you back? I can go through a slew of apologetics, but I think that's just going to bore you to death. But I want to just kind of focus on one thing because I think this is one thing that our culture in the Bay Area struggles with. It's this idea of goodness. Ask yourself this question. If I were to give you a postcard or a piece of paper or sticky or something and put on the question there, what's wrong with the world today? And you can put whatever answer you want. Or do you even have an answer? Most of you will have some sort of answer. Most of you cannot nail it down to one thing. Most of you would probably have to have a list of things. Right? All these things that are wrong with the world today. But let's just limit it to one, and you had to just put one. Your top one. Many people, atheists, others who believe not in God, I would think that they would think that their number one thing today that's wrong with the world today is religion. That they might put that. I've heard that through some atheists. I've heard that through some different prominent talk show people. And that if we just got rid of religion, then we'd get rid of many of the ills that exist on the earth. And so here's where I'd like to offer some pushback on not just their answer, but on whatever answer that you may have put down on your sticky note. That if you didn't put a three-letter word, you, as what is wrong with this world, then there's obviously some pride in your life. That there's probably a lack of recognition of the magnitude of sin in your life. The biggest problem in the world, the biggest problem in your life, 
is you. You are. So if all of us dealt with our biggest problems, wouldn't this be a better world? Wouldn't the problem be solved? You see how we need Jesus? Because how can you fix yourself if you're the biggest problem? You couldn't do it. And how can somebody else fix you if they're the biggest problem? You couldn't do it. Jesus came to save you. The resurrection of Jesus is core to the Christian faith, and without it, there is no Christianity. And for anyone who wants to disprove Christianity, I just gave you the way to do that. I'm giving it to you in an Easter jelly bean-filled egg. If you disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, you do that. You prove Christianity false. But if you don't do that, and it is true, because how can it be in between? It is either true or false. And you have to answer that question. And both ways would be awesome, wouldn't it? Because if you answered it true, you've found the Savior. If you've answered it false, you've saved billions of people from leading down a false faith. Please do it. Please prove that it is either true or false. And this is what Saul of Tarsus, who was a Pharisee, a religious Jew of religious Jews, he's like the most religious guy of them all, this is what he set out to do. He was completely convinced that Jesus Christ was dead, that the gospel of Jesus was just a bunch of lies, and the followers of Jesus, they deserved imprisonment or they deserved death. Isn't that the same thing with the world today? Well, people are saying like, hey, religion's false, religion's dead, they deserve to be locked up, they deserve all this kind of stuff. But what did Paul find out? He found that he was dead wrong. And he found that Jesus resurrected from the dead. The gospel was indeed true. And he himself became a follower of Jesus. A guy who was imprisoning people. A guy who was there at Stephen's death. Just said, hey, I'll hold your coats while you guys kill that guy. Who was Paul? Paul became one of the greatest champions of the Christian faith of the gospel. He wrote 13 of the New Testament books in the Bible. Arguably 14. There's some debate about the book of Hebrews. But that's for when we study Hebrews. He wrote this, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1-5. through 5. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture, and that he appeared to many. A lot of people. Paul, along with billions of others in the history of the world, recognized the events of this past week. Darkness, the loud cry of Jesus, a torn curtain, an empty tomb. All of it for you. And that's the heart and the meaning of Easter in picture form for you. Let's pray. Lord, I want to specifically lift up to you, Lord, those who have doubts whether this, any of this is true. And I ask, God, that you would give them the perseverance to seek truth, that you would open their eyes, that you would open their minds to give them a discerning spirit, a discerning mind as to what questions to ask. Lord, the evidence is all present. We have thousands of years of evidence, Lord. And faith is not completely just faith, Lord. There is empirical evidence that we see with it. And so we ask, Lord, that you would bless them just with good logic and good reasoning as they think for themselves what believing in you would mean for their life. 
And so, God, would you bless us, your humble servants, to be able to answer those questions? God, I ask that you would prevent us from being arrogant, that you would prevent us from not being humble as we serve people you love so dearly and desire to stand where that curtain was once and to usher them into the kingdom. And God, I pray for those who are struggling with their faith. Thank you for that example of the criminal on the cross next to you. There's hope for us. Thank you for rising from the dead. Thank you for rescuing us from our darkness and from sin. Thank you for enduring all that you have and knowing fully well that you can empathize with our pain. In Jesus' name, amen.